Now back to the Ian O'Connor Show on 98.7 ESPN. The Yankee just added to the COVID list Anthony Rizzo, and that list just grows and grows and grows. And maybe it's the only thing that is going to stop the Yankees at some point. They've lost so many people. And, of course, the, the thing that you worry about the most and, and is of greatest consequence is just Anthony Rizzo's health and the health and safety of, of his family as well. That, that's, I think, foremost on everyone's mind. And then after that, you talk about the baseball impact on this team. When you look at Cole and Montgomery and Judge and Sanchez and Urshela and on and on and on, and now Rizzo that have uh, tested positive, gone on the COVID-19 list. And at some point, the Yankees have overcome so many things and have now won 20 of 28 games since Losing that second game to the Mets, winning the back end of that doubleheader on July 4th, they're 20-8. and eight. And that's why all of a sudden, which is really hard to believe that the Yankees are now in position, I think they're going to end up hosting that wild card. I think they'll get the first wild card the way the Red Sox are going. And, and I think they've now killed off Seattle. So Oakland, I just think the Yankees are a better team than the Oakland A's and ultimately will overtake them as well. And they're right on their heels as is. So... The Yankees are going to end up, I think, with that first wild card. They have a shot to win the division. I don't think they will, but it's a credible shot. I think now that they've really cut that deficit that was, what, 10 games not too long ago behind the Red Sox. Now it's it's striking distance, not likely, but it is a legitimate shot. But at the very least, I think they'll be the first wild card. And, and so you look at where they are and, and what they've overcome – and now Rizzo being the latest COVID-19 player on that list. And, and so at some point, I think with three outbreaks this year, 10 Yankees over the last month, you have to be concerned in three or four guys just this week that if they can't control these outbreaks, will one happen at the worst possible time, talking about late September into October. And you'd hate to even consider that being – a reasonable scenario, but I think just based on the fact that they've had more trouble with this than any team in baseball, for the most part, that that is maybe the only thing that could stop them at, at this point because they are playing great baseball right now. And I think Seattle just can't wait to get out of town, really. they The Mariners came into Yankee Stadium believing that they had a chance to really solidify their own playoff chances, and they've just been blown out of the water. And the Yankees, with the with the comeback victories over the Mariners, and just different players contributing at different times. Gallo Thursday night with the big home run, his first big Yankee moment. And you just have seen, as Aaron Boone talked about it yesterday, I was there in the Bronx for, for that game, and and the resilience of this team. Resilience in a baseball season, it's such a long season, is just as, if not more important than talent, really. And it, uh, it is such a, a grind, such a long season, such a marathon. And I think the Yankees, it's really a tale of two baseball cities right now when you look at the Mets just completely falling apart. The Yankees know how to play a 162-game season. They know how to hang in there and work the problem over six months. And the Mets are not very good at that. I've been doing this. I've been a columnist and a writer in New York for 35 years, and there is no franchise that collapses quite like the New York Mets. And you go back to their signature collapses, if you will, and that would be 2007, which is the one that stands out the most. They had a seven-game lead 
in the division with 17 games to play, and they didn't even make the wild card. That is just unbelievable. I'll never forget the final day of that Tom Glavin on the mound with 303 victories to his name, needing a win to make the playoffs, and he gave up seven runs in the first inning. A complete first ballot Hall of Famer with more than 300 victories to his name at that point gave up seven runs in the first inning, recording one out. The Mets lose that game to the Marlins and really punctuated the greatest collapse I've ever seen. And then the following season, 2008, the Mets are up three and a half games in September, lose that one, lose to the Marlins again, lose that final series at home, the final series ever at uh, Shea Stadium, losing again to the Marlins and not getting into the tournament. So here they are all these years later. Uh, the Mets, obviously, you saw them make the World Series in 2015. You're thinking, okay, that's the restart of a real program, winning program here. They lose the wild card game the, the next season, and they haven't been in the playoffs since. And for most of this season, it felt like it was, there was real change in the air, a different vibe around this franchise. Steve Cohen as the owner, a can-do vibe from him, given his budget and his Steinbrenner-esque hunger for the fight. And at least that's the way it felt. And the money he was willing to spend on talent, as he proved with the Lindor deal. And the Mets making a big move at the trade deadline to, to get Baez. And so it felt like in a very weak division, relatively speaking, in a season where while he was healthy, Jacob deGrom was the best pitcher I think I've ever seen, that it was a great opportunity for the Mets to not only make the playoffs and given the offensive firepower they had collected, maybe make a lot of noise in October and have a chance to, to get back to the World Series. Well, that's all fallen apart. The, the good news and the only good news and I've written about this in the last couple of days, is that they do have time, unlike in 2007, 2008, when those final series, that was the end of the season, they, they have time to recover and to, to make good on what's happened here in a relatively weak division. The Phillies will cool off, you would think, at some point, maybe the Braves as well. And uh, I know DeGrom is out. We don't know when he'll be back. Lindor as well. And uh, those are not uh, uh, legitimate reasons, though, for where the Mets are and what they're doing. They have enough talent and enough offense in that division to score more than they are. And yesterday, for eight innings, two hits, they did absolutely nothing until the back-to-back-to-back home runs, obviously too little, too late in Philadelphia. The Phillies, of course, were the beneficiaries of the collapses in 2007 and 2008. And here they are, Joe Girardi, as their manager now in position to benefit again from the Mets, just unraveling in a staggering way. I think at this point, they obviously are going to need DeGrom back. We don't know when that's going to happen. They, they may need something out of left field, like Syndergaard coming back and being great almost right away because he's going to run out of time pretty quickly. Uh, we don't know if he'll be back at all, but uh, they need something like that to happen. And, and something, the dynamic of that team has to change. They're, they're facing Zach Wheeler, the former Met, of course. Today in Philadelphia at 1 o'clock, he's having a, a great season. We'll talk to Tyler Kepner of the New York Times in a little bit about uh, where that series is, where the Mets are heading, where the Phillies are heading, and if there is an opportunity here for the Mets to stop the bleeding, as a franchise, they're not good at that. 
when they start bleeding, they usually start hemorrhaging and they never get to stop it. And so right now they're in dire straits. And with Baez, to me, and I, I tweeted this out after the trade, he's, he's a, at times a magical player. That, that head first slide into the plate the other night is as good a slide as I've ever seen, where he, it was a slide of hand, Houdini-esque slide into the plate, where he stops his left hand short of the catcher's tag, does a swim move with his right hand onto the plate. The guy can be a magical player. He's won a couple of games with home runs, and he's obviously a guy with great pedigree coming from the Cubs championship team. And so I would rather have him on my team than not. But coming into the Mets with 131 strikeouts and 15 walks and an on-base percentage of, I believe it was 292 at the time, that's a problem. And there are times when he's at the plate, you know he struck out five times the other day, where you need him to work the count and maybe take the walk if it's there. If you're losing 4 nothing and he's swinging at pitches outside the zone, that's not helping you as a team. So that is a problem. There is pain with the gain of having him on your team. So, so the Mets need something pretty dramatic here to change. I, I thought for, the, uh, for most of the season, Louis Rojas was doing a really good job pushing the right buttons with his team, but he's got to find a button now that works or this thing is going to get away from him, and whether or not DeGrom and Lindor come back, it, it almost might be irrelevant at that point. I don't think anyone in this division is good enough to run away with it, whether it's the Phillies or the Braves. Certainly not the Mets. So I, I do think there is time. I do think they can change the narrative here, but it's, it's in that clubhouse. They have to do it. They have to show a lot of heart here, a lot of resilience to figure out how to do it. And uh, there's no help on the way. Their help has already arrived, and you could argue certainly that management there didn't do enough in terms of fortifying the pitching for, for the run or attempted run down the stretch. And that's a legitimate criticism. And you saw with Brian Cashman, the work he did at the trade deadline, he took a lot of heat over the first half of the season, and, and rightfully so for the makeup of that roster. And just how it lacked so many things, athleticism, left-handed power. It was a team that was a bad base running team, had no speed, fundamentally unsound. There are so many things you could say about that Yankee team. And yet, basically, it's funny. They're covered in different ways in this town by the media, myself included. The Yankees and the Mets. The Yankee mission statement annually is, is we're here to win the whole thing. And if we don't, it's at least a disappointment, if not a complete failure. The Mets, you remember Fred Wilpon's famous words, and I understand he's not the owner anymore, but meaningful September games. So the Mets are hoping to get into the playoffs. The Yankees' mission is to win the whole thing every year. Now, they haven't done it since 2009, since Girardi won in 09 in his second year. And you can argue that Girardi didn't deserve to be fired after going to the ALCS game seven in his final season. But at that point, it was time for a change. Cashman, everyone inside that organization really felt that way. And, and Boone basically has done a good job. He won 203 games his first two years. He's been to the playoffs three straight years. I think they're going to make it a fourth year in a row under him. So it, it's just amazing, though, that the way we looked at the Mets and the Yankees when they were together on the holiday weekend, July 4th, 
it was a complete crisis for the Yankees, and they were still a game or two over 500. They were covered like they were 10 or 15 games under 500. And the Mets, being in a weak division, benefiting from that, were being covered. And again, I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone, as if, wow, it's a magical, a team with a chance to be magical here that has shown a lot of toughness and resilience. And right now, that is being tested to the max. And this collapse, unlike past Mets collapses, can't be blamed on Fred and Jeff Wilpon, who deserved all the criticism they got during those bad times and bad years. It's now Steve Cohen and Sandy Alderson and Zach Scott and Luis Rojas and the players. And they have to find a way to pull this together. And we'll find out soon enough if they're capable of doing that. It's really more about digging deep and showing heart and toughness and resilience at a time when it'll be easy for them to just let go of the rope and we'll see how it plays out. Anyway, we have uh, Tyler Kepner of the New York Times coming up in a couple of minutes. Jim Calhoun, who won three national titles at UConn, of course, the Hall of Fame coach, won those national titles in 99, 2004, and 2011. Of course, his 2011 team led by the newest Nick, Kemba Walker, now the point guard for the New York Knicks. We'll talk to Jim Calhoun about Walker coming home to the Garden. Of course, Kemba played at Rice in Harlem, out of the Bronx, had those great moments in the Big East tournament in Madison Square Garden, now is going to be asked, despite the problems with his left knee, to lead the Knicks to a, to a uh, at least I would think now the way Knicks fans are looking at it is this is a team that should win a playoff series. Now back to the Ian O'Connor Show on 98.7 ESPN. By the way, I, I think we need to address a couple of Team USA things as well and you look at the men's side and the women's side and the women winning their their seventh gold medal and the fifth for sue bird and and tarazi the the two yukon greats we'll ask uh, jim calhoun about that as well just an amazing dynasty that the women have put together in olympic basketball beating japan for the gold medal and that's it for Sue Bird. She's five and out. I think Tarazi left Paris open a little bit. <laughs> but uh, it's pretty amazing. They're the only women or men ever to do that for American Olympic basketball. Five gold medals is just an incredible thing. On the men's side, Kevin Durant. Without Durant, I think the U.S. wins bronze or nothing at all, really, to be honest with you. I think that Popovich is thanking his lucky stars that Kevin Durant decided to play. And coming off the injury and a playoff run where a lot was put on him and he was incredible and gave so much blood, sweat, and tears to the Nets' effort and almost knocked out. He was an inch away from knocking out the eventual champion, Milwaukee Bucks, in Game 7 in Brooklyn. Kevin Durant was so heroic in those playoffs. You don't throw that word around lightly in the world of sports, but, man, he was as close to it in a sports context as you can get while also losing and not advancing to the Eastern Conference Finals where they would have won that series with Atlanta and maybe they would have won the whole thing, who knows. But uh, we'll find out next year. They need to stay healthier with Kyrie Irving and Harden. And, and so Durant gets the monster extension that you thought he would get with the Nets. Now Brooklyn can relax and know he's going to be there for five years. So the rest of his prime will be spent in Brooklyn. And... 
Harden and Kyrie Irving are a little bit of a, a different case. Irving, particularly because of the injuries, is a great player. And they're up for extensions, too. They can get four-year deals. But, man, you're talking about an absolutely staggering financial commitment if Josiah, the owner, is willing to do that. For players who now, particularly Kyrie Irving, his injury history is a concern. Same goes for Kemba Walker and the Knicks. And, of course, was watching Fournier in the Olympics. And the guy's a good player. He's, he's a good offensive player. And there's been a lot of talk about just how much of an upgrade he is for the Knicks and at what cost, 70, what was it, $78 million. So nearly $20 million a year that there's a team option on that contract in the final season. Same for the three-year guys. They signed D. Rose, Burks, and Noel. So the Knicks maintaining some cap flexibility after two years with those players, after three with Fournier. And uh, I think ultimately the Knicks, well, they know deep down and internally they know this, that the, they don't have the kind of players who win championships right now. They basically, what they did was they got a little better. And so next year they're looking at winning a playoff series and maybe two, although that's probably asking too much from this group. But if Derrick Rose and Kemba Walker can stay relatively healthy, that's a big if, you would think that there's enough there with the Knicks to get to the second round of the playoffs this time instead of losing in the first round like they did to a better Atlanta team. The problem is, and we know the NBA is investigating Chicago, possible tampering in the sign and trade for Lonzo Ball. Same thing with Miami in the sign and trade for Kyle Lowry. That was reported by Adrian Wojnarowski and Ramona Shelburne of ESPN. So I, 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 it's hard for me to believe that those deals will be rescinded. I think that some punishment could be meted out there. And who knows what that punishment will be, assuming that some tampering did take place. There's tampering all over the NBA. It's just a question who gets caught. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. <laughs> but I can't imagine that those deals, which they had a domino effect on a lot of teams around the league and what they did. So to undo that, some, I just don't think that's realistic. Who knows? We know that David Stern once didn't allow Chris Paul to go play where he wanted to play in L.A., so I, I guess anything's possible, but I, I'd find it hard to believe that those trades will be undone by, by Adam Silver. But where the Knicks are right now, and if you have thoughts on, on them and the moves they made and adding Kemba Walker, of course, the big move at, at the position that they needed help more than any other position Evan Fournier, who I don't love. It's funny. I, every Knicks fan I know, and I know a lot of them, say the same thing. Eh, I like Fournier. I don't love him. I kind of like him. I don't, I don't really like him. And he's a guy who's basically a below-the-rim player, but he can create his own shot. Great spot-up shooter. He's a guy that the Knicks certainly could have used against Atlanta from the perimeter. And all around, he's a, he's a solid player. And I guess these days in the NBA, if you can get a solid to pretty good to maybe good NBA starter at less than $20 million a year, you take it, and it's a good deal. So he is better than, than Bullock. I don't know how much better, but he's better. And certainly Kemba Walker is an upgrade at the point, and that is going to be the whole thing that left knee with the Knicks this year. And if he can hold up, and play 65 of the 82 games, that's a win. I don't know if he'll get there. I think it's more likely 55 to 60. And you know he didn't finish the playoff series against Brooklyn. 
and he's a very good player who it's it's strange because the Knicks ended up getting two guys that the Celtics gave up on, right? And and didn't bring back long term in, in Fournier and Kemba Walker. I thought when Walker went to Boston, that was going to be a match made in heaven. Everybody talks about the good nature of Kemba Walker and how he's a bright light in your locker room and his personality. It's a winning personality. He showed that in college and he has shown it in the pros. And with Brad Stevens, you just thought that was going to be a with Stevens did not have a good relationship or experience with Kyrie Irving. You thought Kemba Walker would be a great antidote there and it just didn't work out. And Stevens did not bring him back and moved him out to OKC, the buyout, and now he's becoming a New York Nick. And so he's a guy who I think is going to certainly be an upgrade at that position, a, a great position of need, but you need him to play 60 games. And 60 of the 82, I'd be great if he could play 70. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. His knee had those stem cell injections before last season. He struggled with it during the season. He's had a couple of years of, of these knee injuries now. And so we'll talk to Jim Calhoun about that. And and also about just he's a guy who's been around uh, basketball forever, knows the NBA, and where he sees the Knicks right now, when you look at their death chart, it is a an improved team. But long-term, and we've talked about this on this program before, you, you need elite superstar players to win championships in the NBA. That's been proven. If, if you don't have a LeBron James, a Kevin Durant, a Steph Curry, plus another superstar with those kind of players, you're not winning the NBA championship. Now, you could argue, well, Milwaukee had only one true superstar, yes, in, in Giannis, but they had other stars with him, and they, they showed great chemistry. And by the way, they were one inch away from being eliminated in the conference semis, and everybody gets fired. <laughs> Not everybody, but Budenholzer is done, and Giannis is demanding a, a trade, and it's just amazing in sports. The razor-thin margin between victory and just a chaotic, disruptive, dismantling defeat. It was the length of Kevin Durant's extra-large sneaker, his big toe, and they're out with one of the greatest shots you've ever seen, win, lose, or draw at the end of Game 7 in the conference semifinals at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. That is professional sports in a nutshell right there. Instead, now we're talking about whether... Giannis and company can, they're not going to form a dynasty, but they are good enough to win multiple championships. And so there, there's a lot going on where Chicago got better. Miami got better, assuming those trades hold up and we'll see about Philly and Ben Simmons, what happens there. And the Knicks could end up actually being better than they were this year and not being the fourth seed being lower. And, and obviously they need to stay in that top six and stay out of the play in tournament. But it's a, it's a fascinating Eastern Conference and the changes that were made and uh, what the Knicks are going to do going forward because I'll tell you what, we're going to talk about the Knicks' future and the superstar players that I think could end up here. And I, I don't think they're on the roster right now. And It's possible that Julius Randle could take another step towards superstardom this year. I think they're probably most people around the league are looking at him and saying, Last year is about as good as it's going to get with him, and the Knicks made a very good team-friendly 
deal with him. That was a good deal that Leon Rose made with Julius Randle. But is he going to get better? Do people around the league see that happening? Or do you think most people around the league are saying, okay, he's probably actually going to regress just a little bit. He'll still be worth that contract and then some because he'll be a very good player. Or maybe he'll be at the same level, which I think the Knicks would sign up for. But is he ever going to be on that level of the lead superstar on a championship-winning team? That would be LeBron James. That would be Kevin Durant. That would be Steph Curry, Kawhi Leonard, player, Giannis, players of that level. I, I think that nobody really believes that. And that's not a knock on him at all. The guy deserves all the credit in the world for doing what he did for that franchise this year and his work ethic, his professionalism off the charts. And I'm glad. I actually wished he got more money. And I know he didn't want to take the risk of waiting one more season and trying to get that $200 million deal. But good for him that he got a nine-figure contract. He deserved it. And God bless him for everything he did for the Knicks this year and their fan base. They deserved it too. Now back to the Ian O'Connor Show on 98.7 ESPN. Ty Butler is a very talented producer and host here on 98.7 ESPN. He's helping me out every Sunday. And Ty, who's half my age, by the way, he's 28. I'm 56. So I always want a younger generation's perspective (laughs) on the New York Knicks. And so uh, what do you think right now based on the upgrades? And they are upgrades, if if only slight in, in a certain context. But I think that... They're a team now that wins a first-round playoff series, and that's about it, which is okay. That's a step forward, but where, where do you think the Knicks are right now? So I think that's the absolute best-case scenario. I What's think, the worst-case scenario? I think the worst-case scenario is what the expectation for me is, and, and it's for them to be a 6th, 7th, 8th seed and lose in the first round because I think two things can be true. One is they improved because you add Kimball Walker, and if he's anything like the guy he was not in Boston but in, in Charlotte – You've upgraded at a position of, of need and desperation at, at point guard. You get some playmaking for you guys, Randall and Barrett, and it just makes your offense that much better. Um, but the second thing is that the East got better. So you look at the top four teams being who? The, 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 the Bucks, the Nets, the Sixers, the Heat. I know Chicago's going to have some say in that. But who are the Don't forget meeting? Atlanta, too. Yeah. Uh, so it, uh, of those six, so we just named what six teams are the Knicks better than any of them? Uh, yeah, I, that, it's a good question. And what you don't want, I think, if if you told the Knicks right now you're going you're going to be a better team than you were last year, but you'll end up as a six seed. Okay, we'll take it. We'll stay out of the play in tournament. I think the worst case scenario is the Knicks being in the play in tournament and losing. Yeah. So but, they're they're going to be one of the ten best teams. So that puts them at least in that in the playoffs. Right. And so. I, I think, just don't think you're winning a, a, a first-round playoff series because you take the six teams we just named, whoever the four best are, I think we would both agree My um, Milwaukee and Brooklyn are certainly one and two. The Philly's six, probably three. Philly's yeah. going to be three because you would imagine that even if they trade Simmons, they're not going to get worse. They're not trading Simmons for picks. They're trading him for uh, you know impact players. You've got to right. beat in his prime. You're, you're contending for a championship. Whoever that fourth team is, Miami, Chicago, Atlanta. I, I, I just don't think the Knicks are better than any of them. I I think they'll be better than Chicago. I think it's going to take a little while for Chicago to get those pieces working together. And so I'm not going to give Chicago too much love here. What were they last year? 31 and 41? Yeah. Is they going to have a Knicks-like turnaround and win 41 games? And actually the Knicks turnaround was greater than that. 
and I, I don't I don't think so. I think the Knicks will be better than the Bulls this year. Uh, Miami, I think, is a problem. I think Miami's a problem, and assuming again that Adam Silver doesn't knock out the these deals with Chicago and Miami, Larry and Lonzo Ball. So let's assume that Larry is playing with the Heat. I think that is going to be a problem for the Knicks. I think, frankly, the biggest problem is just going to be Kemba's knee and D Rose's health. And if they get lucky, and both of those guys are relatively healthy, I think the Knicks will win a playoff series. I do. I, I don't. Fournier, to me, is a below-the-rim player. I'm not saying he's unathletic, but he's not athletic either. He's sort of in the middle. He can create his own shot, which I like. Bullock couldn't do that. So I think Fournier is a guy I don't really want to pay $78 million to, but in today's NBA, it's not a crazy contract. And so they got better there. And they're relatively deep, I think, not with great players, but with solid to good players. So do I think it's good enough to find a way back in the four spot? Maybe. Maybe it's five, and they'll have to win that first-round series on the road. Yeah, and I I guess one of the biggest questions also becomes, Julius Randle, what version of him do we see? Is it the guy that during the regular season was was good enough for the Most Improved Player of the Year award? Or was it the Julius Randle in the playoffs who got erased by Clint Capella in that Atlanta Hawks defense? You can say that's unfair. The sample size, five versus 72. But we're also talking about a guy who in six years played for three different teams for a reason. Like, great players don't just bounce around the league. Uh, so so did he finally find himself last year? Was it an aberration? I think that's going to be a, another intriguing storyline to watch. Uh, let me, let, let me ask you a question, Ty. I, I just said that if I had to place a guess or a bet on – say, two players who ultimately may end up in New York as superstar players, and you can argue that Carl Anthony Towns isn't quite a superstar. I think that's debatable, but certainly Damian Lillard is. I said Lillard and Towns, and I also think I would say Towns is still a tick better than Randall. Do you agree with that yes, or no? Yes, yes. Okay. So what do you think of that scenario of Lillard and Towns being the guys, say, in the next year and a half who end up in New York at the top oh, of that I roster? Oh, I would love that. Damian Lillard, and then imagine him being here. And I, I think sometimes we over-dramatize the whole Mecca basketball thing. But this guy is one of the greatest shows in the league. So him at the Garden, uh, I think that would be phenomenal. And Cat, he gets swallowed up because he plays for one of the worst organizations in basketball, but he's still a, a, an elite all-star level player. That would be an excellent combination. Well, and and I say it's somewhat reasonable because Lillard has already told Stephen A. Smith he wants to be yep. in New York. Okay, he's 31, so he knows he's running out of time. He's got to make his move pretty soon. I think he'll wait till February, and he'll say, okay, I gave uh, the new regime a chance. They didn't get anybody of, of great note in the offseason. Chauncey Billups is a young coach learning. I have nothing against him, but I need to make my move now. I'm 31, 32 years old. And he wants to be in the garden. So I think he'll find his way there. Philly concerns me a little bit because they, they the could assets. trade Simmons, right? Yeah. Uh, so, But if he wants to go to New York and Philly is in a better position maybe to win a championship now, but it's not New York, he may want the garden. So you put him there. And then at some point, and maybe this is next year, do you trade Randall? For, now, because if you trade for Lillard, you're putting a lot of parts in that deal. Barrett's gone yes. and other pieces and, and draft picks are gone. Mm-hmm. So to then to get that second superstar player, that's when they're going to have to pull the trigger on a guy you really don't want to do that because to. Because you'd assume that if Lillard comes, and with with all due respect to, to Julius Randle, if you're Lillard, how are you leaving C.J. McCollum to come play with Julius Randle? I, I don't think that's the path 
uh, that presents you with the best path to winning a championship. Well, Lillard so you want is a superstar. You want I to believe play Lillard is, is on record saying that. And now, maybe this was through Stephen A. Smith, so my apology for for not knowing exactly here, but that he believes in his ability to recruit somebody else to New York. Yes. Okay. So, and listen, ideally, as I think Knicks fans would love to see Randall part of the team that ultimately wins a championship. He, it, it's it, it's like he deserves that. But it's I don't see that. I don't see how the Knicks can get to superstars with him yeah. still being there. So I would think that Barrett is in a package to get Lillard, and that's going to have to be an extensive package because Barrett's not he's not Ben Simmons, and no. <laughs> so that, that's why in talking earlier, Ty, about the need to develop these young players and assets so they become more appealing to teams around the league, including Portland. I think that is really important. I want to throw a sleeper out there, the Boston Celtics. I think that they should be a team also heavy, heavily invested on trying to get Damian Lillard. Okay, well, They've got good the enough. assets to do it. Now back to the Ian O'Connor Show on 98.7 ESPN. Tonight at 7, you've got the... Pro Football Hall of Fame enshrinement ceremony on ESPN. You also have White Sox and Cubs on ABC TV. I'll be filling in for Bart and Han on Wednesday and Thursday. Looking forward to that very much. And we have a tale of two baseball cities right now as we're looking at the Yankees and Mets. The Yankees ascending to a position where you could certainly see them now being a really dangerous October threat, assuming they get there, and I think they will. The Mets collapsing almost on cue as I said earlier in doing this in New York not on the radio but in on the print side for 35 plus years nobody collapses like the New York Mets somebody has to step up now and stop this it's a different regime a different time and place in the history of this organization they've been in first place most of the year and it is an opportunity with a a weak relatively weak NL East to stop this, recapture first place, win it. Hopefully you have DeGrom and Lindor as part of it in September and then October if the Mets get there. And this is not getting there this year would be blowing just a great opportunity. And again, that's assuming that DeGrom particularly makes it back. And hopefully he will. I think he was at a level this year when healthy like no pitcher I've ever seen. I'd put him right there, if not a tick above Pedro Martinez, in his prime, you know, Connor, 98.7 ESPN, a couple of things that we didn't really get to earlier. Bobby Bowden, Florida State legend, unfortunately died at 91, two time national champ. I was on the field. So, again, I'm going to show my age here for those two wide right games, those misses Florida State, the classic losses to Miami when Florida State was never going to win a national title. And so he got through that. Heartbreaking losses, won two national championships, and really a guy who, just being around him in the early 90s, mid-90s, he just was a homespun guy who could spin a tail really like nobody else. Great storyteller, great talker, great coach. He had his phone number listed in the Tallahassee phone book for the longest time. I think he ultimately took it out of there as college football got bigger and bigger and bigger and turned into a an unruly monster. And But uh, Bobby Bowden, I, I'll never forget being on the field for the first of those, I believe it was the first of those two wide rights, which I think was the more painful one. Well, they were both pretty painful against Miami. And wow, those were the days in college football for me anyway, back when I was covering it for the New York Daily News. 
And Messi, of course, leaving Barcelona. You talk about super teams now signing with PSG on, on a two-year deal. This is bigger than Tom Brady leaving New England, believe it or not. Around the world it is. Messi had 672 goals in 778 games with Barcelona. A lot of people see him as the greatest player of all time. And PSG has Neymar and who else? And Bappi. They've got uh, They've got a super team there now. So it'll be my son... Kyle, who is a Man City fanatic, not happy that uh, Messi did not end up with Man City, but he'll have to live with it. And it's interesting that people talk about super teams in such a negative light these days and LeBron trying to always piece together his deal, Kevin Durant trying to do his deal. And there have been super teams for a long time. Now, the construction of them has been a little different and varied over the decades, but Was Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and James Worthy a super team? Of course they were. And they had other really good players, too, like Byron Scott and Michael Cooper. And you look at Larry Bird, Parrish, Mikhail, Dennis Johnson. Was that a super team? Hell, yeah, it was. Yeah. And so we've seen them in the past. And the Celtics, the great Celtics under Red Auerbach, and even Jerry West, Will Chamberlain, and Elgin Baylor, that threesome actually didn't win a championship. The Lakers won right after... Belgian was uh, Elgin Baylor was gone, but that was a super team. It was supposed to be anyway. So we've seen them over the decades. I think the old school basketball fan who really resents LeBron James for doing what he does and Kevin Durant always trying to piece together a super team. Listen, at the end of the day, as a superstar NBA player, you will be judged by historians, by media members, by fans down the road by how many rings you want. Not exclusively, but that's going to be the number one thing. Everybody knows that Jordan has six and Magic had five and Kobe had five and Larry Bird had three. Probably should add more, but he had three. And so that's how people keep score. That's how people keep count. And so Kevin Durant figured it out early on, losing to LeBron, seeing him with his super team in Miami. And now he has one in L.A. And there was going to be no way to catch up to him in that ring count unless he did the same thing and he and he said to himself this is how I'm going to be judged so that's why he went to Golden State and it was a smart thing to do and why he went to Brooklyn knowing that Kyrie Irving would end up coming with him now he didn't know at the time that James Harden was coming aboard but that's what happens when you put together really high-powered tandems a third person will find a way to get to you and that's what happened with Harden unfortunately he got hurt Unfortunately, Kyrie Irving got hurt, and Kevin Durant didn't get a chance to win a championship. What he did do was, and I was shocked, when I saw that Durant was going back to play for Team USA again to try to win a third gold medal. And really, deep down, and I don't think he's ever said this for public consumption and probably wouldn't, and would probably object to me or anyone anyone else saying this, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if in the back of his mind he, he said to himself, listen, well... I'm not sure I'm going to catch LeBron James in the NBA championship ring race, but I can surpass him here with a third gold medal on the Olympic stage, and he did. And he did with a team that I did not think was going to win the gold medal. I really didn't. And that was really even before they lost in Las Vegas to Nigeria and Australia and before they lost earlier in the Olympic tournament to France. I just... The fact that COVID pushed back the NBA season, you had guys joining so late in Booker and Holiday and Middleton and there being no reps. And I didn't think that Popovich was the greatest 
match with this group. And you have to give him credit because he pulled it together somehow, some way. It looked like it was about to be a Larry Brown-like Athens disaster. And listen, Popovich was on that staff in 2004 when Larry Brown had to settle for a bronze medal after losing to Puerto Rico and a couple of other uh, teams in that tournament. And Popovich was part of the George Carl disaster in 2002 in the World Championships in Indianapolis when they finished sixth with NBA stars. Sixth. So to now try to follow Mike Krzyzewski winning three gold medals in three attempts on the Olympic stage, it, given the circumstances that Popovich had to deal with, you have to give him an awful lot of credit pulling this off. Now, if he didn't have Kevin Durant, I'm not sure they medal. I think they get the bronze at best. Kevin Durant saved this team. And Kevin Durant, I mentioned in a column a ways back that I thought that he could end up challenging LeBron at some point here because he's younger. He'll have more opportunities to win down the road and score and and rack up statistics that he had a chance to maybe catch up to LeBron on the all-time small forward front and, and that he would surpass Larry Bird as the second best small forward of all time and maybe have a chance to catch LeBron James. And Bob Ryan, the dean of all basketball writers at the Boston Globe, responded to me via email. Might have been Twitter or Facebook. I think it was an email just saying, are you crazy? Are you crazy saying Kevin Durant is going to be better than Larry Bird? (laughs) I said, no. Well, listen, I think it's at least a conversation. And I know Bird has him on rings right now, three to two, and MVPs, three to one. But, man, I don't know. I've never seen anything on the perimeter like Kevin Durant. Basically, he's a seven-footer with an incredible wingspan. He, he can handle the ball like a guard, like a six-foot point guard. And the guy's just unbelievable. He makes the game look as easy as, as, as possible, and, and it's such a hard game. And, and to do the things he's doing and to go back and to carry this team to an Olympic gold medal, was an amazing accomplishment. This was not, to me, a gold medal team, given the circumstances. They have the talent. Of course, they had the most talent in the Olympic tournament in Japan, and every other country's head coach would have traded for that roster, would have wanted that roster, but with practice, with reps, with time together to build a little cohesion and chemistry. And Popovich did not have that. And I think a lot of people were ready to pounce on him. He, behind the scenes, was really unhappy that he lost out to Mike Krzyzewski in 2008 for Beijing, for one. And for two, that Krzyzewski stayed on and did 2012 in London and 2016 in Rio. Popovich was livid about that. He did not think, and he told a friend who then told me, and I've been researching a book on Coach K that's coming out in February, not trying to plug something six months in advance, but that he felt you do it once and that's it. Then you move on. And he told a friend, I didn't think this was supposed to be a lifetime appointment. Well, okay, it it was a lifetime appointment to some degree, but the bottom line is Coach K went three for three in gold medals. It's not easy to do. He did have LeBron James and Kobe Bryant for the first two of those. Then he had KD. KD was also there in 2012, but he had him in 2016. No LeBron, no Kobe Bryant, and still found a way to win that gold medal with that team was shaky in Rio. That team hung on. Now they blew out what was it, it was Serbia in the gold medal game, but there were some shaky moments in that tournament in Rio for that group. So he got three out of three and now hands it off to Popovich, who was upset he didn't get it earlier. 
and he had some very challenging circumstances to deal with, but he overcame it, and he overcame it because of Kevin Durant. So his legacy just keeps growing and growing, and yeah, I now think he's better than Larry Bird. I do. I think he's right now the second greatest small forward to ever play the game behind LeBron James. He's younger than LeBron, what, by four years, so... Does he have a chance, maybe not in rings, but just sort of on that all-time unofficial scoreboard of in people's eyes sort of ending up right with him? Because right now this is LeBron's generation, but maybe it'll be remembered as the LeBron KD generation. He'll be right there with him. Now back to the Ian O'Connor Show on 98.7 ESPN.